was obviously good. <laughs> that was very good. So thank you, everyone who played and sang this morning for um, adorning the gospel well, right? That's what's happening. They're, they're adorning the gospel in the way that they play with skill and ability and sing with skill and ability and exalting Christ through that. So thank you all. Uh, for doing that this morning. Um, You can open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. I'm excited here. We're going to take a little bit of a break from the Gospel of Mark, not because I'm tired of it, and hopefully not because you're tired of it, but we kind of got to the the middle point in the book, and so we're going to take a break here and examine Titus. Very helpful little little epistle in the New Testament. And as we start this book, and we look at the beginning of this book— I want to read you the first lines of several different novels this morning, and I want you to see if you can identify the novel based on the first line. So we'll see who is an English major in college here this morning, all right? Call Me Ishmael. Does anybody know what that one is? Moby Dick. Herman Melville, Moby Dick, all right? It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Do you guys know what that one is? It's a funny line, there's no doubt. (laughs) Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Does anybody know what that one's from? Anna Karenina, Leo Tolstoy. The last one's a little longer. I'm going to read it to you. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. They were the last people you'd expect to be involved in anything strange or mysterious because they just didn't hold with such nonsense. You all know what that one's from. A favorite of mine, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the beginning of that whole series. Um, love that. Love those books. Now, those are the first lines of, of several different well-known novels. And the interesting thing about a couple of those, at least, is the way they begin, that first line honestly sets the tone and some of the themes for the rest of the book. And you often will find that true if you're watching a movie, um, reading a, a book, whatever piece of work it may be. Many times the author has begun his work or her work in a way that sets the tone for the rest of the, the movie or the book or the letter, whatever it may be. So it's important to pay attention to the very beginning of some piece of artwork. Novels begin in a variety of ways, right? I mean, there's, there's some that are funny, some that are serious, and the first line of the first paragraphs are all over the map. But when you get to the New Testament and you read letters from the Apostle Paul, Paul begins all of his letters with the same structure, at least. But he uses different words oftentimes throughout that structure, and many times he does that to show us what this letter is going to be like and the themes of the upcoming letter. And so when you get to Paul's letters, you can't just skip over the greeting portion at the beginning of it and think, well, that's just him introducing the letter. Because a lot of times he's showing us the major themes of that particular piece of work that he's writing. Now, when you come to the book of Titus, this is one of his shortest letters, but this is one of the longest greetings in his letters. And so we want to take particular note of this greeting. It's verses 1 to 4, as you can see on the screen there. And we want to study this this morning 
And he's going to introduce us to some of the major themes of the book of Titus. And so this will aid your understanding and my understanding of what's coming over the next eight or nine weeks as we're in this little book and learning together. So look at me, look with me at Titus chapter one and verse one. Paul, this is how he begins all his letters, Paul with his name, but then he goes off course a little bit here from some of the other letters. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he he begins all his letters by introducing himself and letting you know, I am the one who is writing this letter. Here's who behind who is behind this. And notice the two ways that he introduces himself, a servant of God and an apostle of of Jesus Christ. Now notice what he doesn't say in that. Paul could have said a lot of things to introduce himself, couldn't he? And he could have said, Paul, one who studied at the feet of Gamaliel. Or he could have said, Paul, church planter extraordinaire. Or he could have said, Paul, visionary leader. Because he was, in a sense, all of those things. But that's not how he introduces himself here. He calls himself a servant. That is his baseline understanding of who he is and how his ministry functions. He's a servant and he's an apostle. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know probably that that word servant there could be translated and maybe should be translated slave in the New Testament. The idea here with that word is that Paul wants us to understand he views his life as owned by God. He is under God's authority and everything he does in ministry and in life is for God. He is essentially the property of God. He didn't spend his life in his own pursuits with his own agenda. Instead, he was all about whatever God wanted him to do. He worked for the furtherance of God's cause. And that's how he understood himself. That's how he introduces himself. I'm Paul. I'm here for God. I'm a servant of God. And Paul understood that you and I are always functioning as a servant or a slave of someone. There's no way around that. In in Romans 6, he says this, But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin. You who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. There's two options in this life. You come into this world enslaved to sin under the dominion and the authority of sin and God frees us from that and frees us. True freedom is the ability to do that which is right and to do that which is good. It's not to do whatever I want when I want. It's to do that which is good and which is right. You were born a slave to sin, and by God's grace, you have been bought out of slavery to sin. And like Paul identifies himself here, now you are the servant, the slave of God, and he is a good and gracious master. And that had a massive impact on how Paul viewed himself and how he viewed his ministry, which is what we're going to talk about in the book of Titus. So that's why he introduces himself as a servant of God. But he also here calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he's a servant, he's owned by God, but he's an apostle. Now, what is he trying to get at when he says that he's an apostle? Well, that's that's significant. I mean, not everyone is an apostle in the New Testament. 
And the apostles were key individuals who were commissioned by God because they had seen the risen Christ. And so they were the the foundation, essentially, of the church because they had seen Christ and they were to preach of Christ. And so when Paul says here, I'm a slave of God, but I'm also an apostle, I serve God, but I carry his authority with me as I serve him. And so whatever Paul writes and preaches, particularly in the book of Titus, is under the authority of God, of Jesus Christ. So everything we're going to read in this letter carries the authority of Christ, the teaching of Christ in it. So Paul identifies himself as a, as a slave, as a servant of Christ, of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, those are interesting designations. And when you think about each person in this room, we all have different roles that we, we perform in life, that we function in, right? I'm a husband. That's one of my roles. I'm a father. I'm a pastor. Those are some of the roles that I function in. I've been a number of other things in my life. I've been a soccer coach, a student, a dump truck driver, a shoe salesman. And each of those roles carried with it different aims or different targets. Here's what, because of this role, I am trying to accomplish as I work out this role. So when you read about Paul here being a servant and an apostle, It comes naturally that there are going to be things he's trying to accomplish here. There are goals, there are responsibilities that he has because he is these two things. So what are these objectives that Paul is striving toward? And whatever these objectives are, are going to be significant for us as we think about ministry within the local church. Paul is hoping to accomplish certain things in the people he's serving as he serves with the authority of God. Well, he tells us in his greeting, look, I'm a servant, I'm an apostle, and here's what my ministry is all about. I mean, if you could boil Paul's ministry down to just a few things, wouldn't that be wonderful to understand? That's what he tells us here. These are the goals that I have for this little book of Titus. And so this morning in verses 1 to 4 of Titus 1, this greeting The title is A Greeting with a Goal. It is. It's a goal that Paul has. We're going to see three ministry goals from Paul. And these three ministry goals we want to build into one another in ministry. As we do ministry in this body, as you go to small group, as you go to the Grand Prix on Saturday, which was a wonderful time, as you go to the Easter egg hunt in a month and a half, as you do all of these things, as you do read and reach, As you engage in the life of this church, these are the goals that we want to strive after for one another and with one another. So there are three ministry goals that we want to aspire to because Paul says these are vital to what I'm trying to accomplish in ministry, all right? Three ministry goals, the first one of these, this is what he's trying to build into the people that he's serving with the authority of God. First of all is faith, and that faith is based on God's electing Love. Look at verse 1. Look how he says this. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for, he's those things for this reason, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. It's meant, his service to God is meant to encourage and build up faith in the people he's serving. This is what he wants. Now, faith is one of those words we talk about regularly. It's a concept or an idea that is vital to the Christian life. 
I mean, you, you can't understand Christianity without understanding faith to some extent. This is one of the goals that Paul wants to encourage in believers. Obviously, faith begins the Christian life, right? Like you start, you're justified, you're declared righteous by faith, by believing the work of Jesus Christ, by embracing that work. When faith is born into your heart, that begins your life as a believer. But it doesn't, you don't just have faith at the beginning of your Christian life. Faith is something that we continually go back to and we continually grow in. The whole of your Christian life continues by faith. I mean, Paul talks about this regularly in his epistles. Galatians chapter 2, you know this verse well. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. We get up every day and we live by faith. That's the goal. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, faith is one of those interesting concepts because it's a little bit like humility. And you all understand that when you start to think that you have humility and start to focus on humility, it, there's a tendency to lose humility very, very quickly, right? Humility is a lack of self-awareness in many ways. You're so focused on other people that you're just not even aware of yourself in, in all the good ways. Now, there's, a, there's a kind of lack of self-awareness that's bad, but humility is the good kind. You're so concerned with others that you're just not even worried about yourself. Faith is similar in some ways because faith turns its gaze outward to the object of faith. Someone who's exercising faith isn't sitting there constantly thinking, do I have faith? Do I have the right kind of faith? Is my faith strong enough? That's not how faith grows. Faith grows by turning outward and focusing on the object of faith. It's a little bit like a wrong kind of faith is a little bit like a person who is constantly trying to capture events with their cell phone and they're trying to take videos and they're always looking at their cell phone rather than looking at the actual event. And I am so guilty of this with my kids. They do something funny and hilarious, and I'm always looking through my phone. Well, that's what the wrong kind of faith is like. It's an attention always on the phone rather than on the, the real enjoyment, which is, is the kid doing what is hilarious and funny. And so sometimes we focus on our faith instead of the object of faith. And that's why I think it's so helpful here the way Paul phrases this. Look back in verse 1. He says that his goal is to grow the faith of God's elect. It's like a subtle hint there. This is where your faith is directed. If you are saved, you are only saved because you are one of God's elect. He has done the work of choosing you. Now, I know election can often be a controversial topic for Christians but this is something that should be encouraging and edifying to us as believers. I mean, this is the reality that we were born enslaved to sin and we were running in the opposite direction and God reached out and he saved us and he gave us faith. And so we could exercise it. He gave us spiritual life. I mean, Ephesians chapter two makes this pretty clear for by grace, it's an undeserved gift. You have been saved through faith. And this, the whole thing, the grace, the faith, the salvation, all of it, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The whole process of salvation 
including faith, is within the realm of God's gracious gift to us. And so Paul, I think, lays that out beautifully here. He wants to grow the faith of those who've been chosen by God. He wants them to consider their election, to consider the love and the work of God in their lives. He's going to remind them of the overwhelming goodness of God's gracious gift. And that's where their attention needs to be. That's where they need to look in order for their faith to grow. And for you and I, that's precisely how ministry should be for us. We should be encouraging and helping one another to turn our gaze from self outward to the gracious gift of God in salvation. Help me look there. And I want to help you look there. And you want to help one another look there to that gift. So in our conversations with one another, let's have that as our mission and our goal. Turn one another's gaze to, from self to God's electing love. So that's the first uh, of these uh, goals that Paul has for his ministry here. And the second one is also found in verse 1. And it, it goes with faith. It's in conjunction with faith. It's not a distinct thing necessarily. This is knowledge. So three ministry goals that Paul has He wants to grow faith that's based on God's electing love. And he also wants to grow knowledge in those he's ministering to. And this knowledge results in godliness. Look at the rest of verse 1. I'll just read the whole thing. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for, here's what that's for, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and, here's the second thing, their knowledge of the truth. Paul wants us to grow in faith and knowledge, both of those things. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, and we talked about how faith really can't grow without knowledge. Knowledge is, in, is important for our faith. They're, in, they're intimately tied together, and Paul's service to God wants both of these things to grow in us. Now, when he says knowledge here, sometimes we think of knowledge as just understanding facts, Raw information. He wants to impart information to us. That's, that's not the knowledge that Paul is going for here in believers. He doesn't just want you to be able to pass a systematic theology test. Although that'd be great if we could all do that. That's not his primary goal. Proper knowledge of the truth will result in godliness. Look how he says it here. And their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Proper knowledge of God's word and God's truth and the gospel results in godliness. Now, what does he mean by by godliness? Well, this term is used a lot in First and Second Timothy and in Titus. He talks about this over and over again. And the idea here is a fully formed Christian, mature in character, And this person is properly related to God. They understand who God is. They understand that God is creator and sustainer. And they respond in their life, their life appropriately to that information. And so it works itself out in their attitude, in their desires, in their actions, how they see the world. And so proper knowledge results in godliness. It changes the way we live. Now, I think this is one of those very um, on, very much ongoing struggles that believers have. What is the relationship between what I understand 
and what I do. I know things that I don't act on. And we all have that in our lives. We know we should do certain things, but we don't act on those things. And this letter of Titus, there's a reason it's called, their series is called Doctrine Works. The idea is that when you properly understand things and when you begin to grasp who God is and the teaching of Scripture, it works itself out in your life and you start to act on these things. And this is a major theme throughout the letter of Titus. Let me show you a couple of places where Paul talks about the connection between sound doctrine, between knowledge, and between action. All right? Uh, Look down at verse 6. So Paul is talking about appointing elders. And here's what he said about elders. If any of one is above reproach. So there's there's a character of life for an elder where he's above reproach, but elders also have to be sound in doctrine. Look at verse nine. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. An elder must have godly character and be one who has sound doctrine. And that's the problem with the false teachers. Look at verse 16. These false teachers profess chapter one, verse 16. They profess to know God. They say, I know God but they deny him by their works. There's a disconnect there between what they say they know and what they do in their lives. The rest of verse 16, they are detestable because of this disconnect. There's a chasm between what they know and what they do. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work because their knowledge doesn't shape the way they live. But Titus isn't supposed to be like that. Look at the very next verse, chapter 2 and verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So Titus, teach the right things. And then the rest of this chapter goes on. Let's just look at verse 2. Older men are to be, and he describes older men. And then he describes the character of older women. The point is, all these different groups are supposed to be living in a particular way because of sound doctrine. Because of the truth of God's word. And then very familiar passage to you. Chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. This makes that connection very clear. For the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. And what does this grace. This doctrine do for us. Training us to renounce ungodliness. And worldly passions. And to live self-controlled. Upright and godly lives. In the present age. The grace of God trains us for righteousness and for godliness. This is important. And this is one of the reasons we're going to this letter. Because doctrine should work in our lives. And Titus is immensely practical for life in the local church. Because it's based on good doctrine. Now, you and I, we have more knowledge at our disposal (laughs) than any people in the history of the world. And that is not an exaggeration. You know that is true. I mean, when I'm talking to my kids about something during the week, and if they ask me a question and I say, I don't know, their response now is, Google it. (laughs) Because you can get the information that you need or want instantaneously. We have all the knowledge in the world at our disposal. But one of the things that does for us is it trains us to receive knowledge without using that knowledge in our lives. We skim over information through social media, through cable news, 
whatever it may be, through Google, and we receive bits of information, but then we never let that information get down into us and change the way we functionally live our lives. And so we're being trained to not let our knowledge impact our daily lives. And that's a scary thing for us. And most of us don't even realize that. But Paul says here over and over again, that cannot be the way you encounter biblical knowledge. Doctrine must change your life. It must change the way you live. And that's one of the goals that we're going to aspire to as we as we read and study this little letter together. And Paul says right up front, this is one of my goals. I want you to know things, and I want you to know things about God's word and who he is so that it changes you and you become more godly. St. Augustine put this connection between scriptural knowledge and godliness very clearly. And I love, love this quote. Whoever then thinks that he understands the Holy Scriptures or any part of them, but puts such an interpretation upon them as does not tend to build up this twofold love of God and our neighbor, does not yet understand them as he ought. What's he saying there? He's saying if you think you understand your Bible and you aren't loving God and neighbor more through your system, through your knowledge, then you are gravely mistaken about your understanding of Scripture. Because Scripture wasn't just written to give us a systematized account of doctrine, although it does that, and that is vitally important. We would never downplay that. We have to have that. And it's important that you know that and that you understand the truth that is presented here. But one of the intentions of the biblical authors was to give us that doctrine and to change the way we live. Paul wrote this. The Holy Spirit inspired this so that you and I would grow in godliness. Not just so we would know how the church is to be structured better. But growing in godliness requires us to know how this church should be structured better. They go together. And that's Paul's point here. Don't separate. Don't put asunder what God has joined together. Knowledge and godliness. And this is so important for our ministry to one another, isn't it? Because you and I can't just be satisfied when we say the right things to one another in small groups. When we affirm the right doctrines, Jesus is God, yes. We have to go a step beyond that and we have to help one another to let that shape our lives and to change how we live every single day and every single week. One of the goals of ministry to one another is to let us let our knowledge change the way we live. Use the knowledge that you have received. Don't just Google it. Get the information and let it go. Get the information and let it change the way you live. That's why our mission statement is that we would worship and that we would connect with one another. Because we need one another to really live out the knowledge that we've received. Church is not just a place that you come and receive teaching. It's a place that you come and you receive teaching that then is put into practice with one another. It's not just a lecture time. It's a time to put all of this into practice in your lives. And that's Paul's goal. He wants to build our faith and he wants to build our knowledge which accords with godliness. And there's one more ministry goal. And this is found in the rest of his greeting in verses 2 and 3. And this is hope. And it's hope which clings or which longs for eternal life. 
and clings to it now. Now, look at this in verse 2. He talks about faith, he talks about knowledge, and then in verse 2, in hope of eternal life. This is the third ministry goal that Paul has. Now, hope is a word that is central to Christian identity. Honestly, this shapes so much about how you go about your life and how I go about my life, but we don't talk about hope that often. For some reason, it sort of gets pushed out to the peripheral. We talk about love, we talk about faith, we talk about good doctrine, and all of those are wrapped up together. They're not to be put apart. But we need to think a little bit about hope this morning. What does Paul mean here by hope? Hope is a confident anticipation of what is to come. It's looking forward to something that's to come, the future. And it's waiting for that something to happen. Hope is important. Paul puts this in pretty rarefied company in 1 Corinthians 13, right? He says that faith, hope, and love abide. And so those are significant pieces of our Christian lives. Hope is what you experience when you are looking forward to something and you you have to wait for it. You're anticipating it. And in this instance, Paul says it's hope in something particular. What are you waiting for? Look back at verse 2. In hope of eternal life. So if that's the thing that we're waiting for and we're anticipating, and if that's really supposed to impact the way we live, what are we talking about when we say eternal life? I mean, this is another one of those really good Christian terms that we use all the time that we need to have a little bit of a sharper understanding of. When we think of eternal life, we often think in terms of the duration of life. It's life that goes on forever. That's how we think of it. And that is true. It does go on forever. But that's not the primary way in which the New Testament speaks about eternal life. In the New Testament, eternal life is talking more about the quality of life than it is about the duration of life. It's both of those things, but it's emphasizing what sort of life this is. There's a quality to this life. It's life that is in fellowship with that which is eternal. Let me say that again. It's life that is in fellowship with that which is eternal. It's not just life that goes on forever. It's life that is connected to and is enjoying fellowship with that which is eternal, which is God. I mean, you know this from John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life. He defines it here. That they know you. It's fellowship. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's not just life that goes on forever. It's life that knows God. He talks about this a little bit further in John 17, verse 20. This is Christ's prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. You see how he prays that we would be one with the Father and the Son? That's eternal life. It means joining the family and experiencing life as a part of the family. 
It's called eternal life because God defines life. He shows us what true life is. And now you and I get to experience fellowship with that which is truly life. Uh, One of my favorite authors on the Trinity, Fred Sanders, said this about eternal life. The good news of salvation is ultimately that God opens his Trinitarian life to us. Every other blessing is either a preparation for that or a result of it. But the thing itself, the good news itself, is God's graciously taking us into the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are not saved just so we can go to heaven. We're saved so we can go to heaven and live on the new earth so that we can fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the ultimate end and goal. That is eternal life. And so Paul here explains and wants for you and I that our hope would be grounded in this. Not just life that lasts forever, I'm never going to die ultimately, but life that is spent in fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's my hope. That's what gets me going in the morning. That's what I anticipate and I long for. And I'm willing to wait in the meantime because, man, that's going to be good. Really good. And now he goes on in the rest of this to explain how that eternal life comes to us. How do we receive it? Look what he says in verses 2 and 3. In hope of eternal life, and here's how we have it, which God, who never lies, he promised before the ages began, he promised that we would have fellowship with him in eternal life before the ages began. And he never lies. He promised before the ages began, and at the proper time, in his timing, he manifested in his word the truth of eternal life through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. How does eternal life come to you? Paul is basically pulling up to 35,000 feet here, and he's saying, let me give you the big picture, the scope of God's salvation as it comes to you. And he narrows in on three main words here. This gives us the progression of how this salvation comes to us. It is promised to us. It is manifested through his word. And it is entrusted to Paul and to others who will then go on and tell others about that. Of which you and I are some of those. Promised, manifested, entrusted. That's the progression. And so we see God's promises being fulfilled. We trust his word. And then he manifests his promise through his word, conveys that word to us through servants who preach it and teach it. And we believe it and we hope in it. That's how that hope is built into us and how it comes to us. Now, Paul uses this word here at the end of verse three. He says he has been entrusted by the command of God. He's talking about the reception of this message. I mean, you can picture someone here who has received something and has the duty to pass it on. And there's a a certain amount of faithfulness that is required of Paul. He has received this unbelievable good news, this hope of eternal life. And now he is responsible to turn around and to pass that on. He has been entrusted with this message and he must remain faithful as he does that. He's received the promise of God. And he's passing it along to others. And that's what he's doing in this little letter of Titus. He's passing on the promise and the hope of eternal life. Now, when you think about hope in eternal life, we've been talking about it as something that is is future. We're hoping in 
the point where we will be in full fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit without sin. We anticipate the future, but that's something that in some way we can experience the beginning of that fellowship now in our lives. And as we begin to experience that fellowship now, as it is manifested among us through the preaching of the word and our hope grows, it changes the way we live. It makes us different. In 1 Timothy 4, he says this, For to this end we toil and strive, right? So there's action happening there. Why? Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Hope changes the way you live. It's not just something you wait for and anticipate. It impacts you now, and you cling to it now, and it changes your life this week. So, faith knowledge and hope. That's what Paul hopes to give to Titus and to those who read this letter. That's his goal. But we still haven't talked about verse 4, and this is the last thing I want you to notice about Paul's letter here. Now, those words, when you first hear those words, faith, knowledge, and hope, they sound pretty abstract. I mean, they sound doctrinal. They sound out there. How do these things work themselves out in daily life? They're not abstract because of verse 4. Paul says, look, I'm Paul, and my goal is to impart these to a particular person who's then going to pass them on to others. Now look at verse 4. To Titus. I mean, these are real people in real time and space, and a real man named Paul is going to pass this on to his associate, Titus. Look back at verse 4. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is meant to be passed on from an apostle to his beloved disciple and associate, Titus. There's genuine relationship that happens here to impart faith, knowledge, and hope. And that ought to be true for us as well. These are the goals, and it takes genuine relationship to pass these things on. It takes breakfast together, lunch together. It takes having one another over on Friday evenings. It takes coming to the church and meeting together, different Bible studies, prayer meetings, events. It takes life together for these things to happen. And I think we learn that from Paul writing to his friend and associate Titus. Here's what I want for you. Now, sometimes when you get involved in something that's very complex and there's a lot of moving pieces to it, it can be difficult to think back to the sort of core values and the basics of what makes that thing go. A couple of weeks ago, the Super Bowl happened. Didn't go the way I wanted it to, but that's all right. We can still talk about it. I'm big enough to talk about it. The Super Bowl happened, but if you're not familiar at all with football, Football is a very complex game. Uh, I watch it all the time, and I, I have no idea sometimes what's happening with plays and defenses and alignments and structures and all of that. It's a very, very complex strategic game. I mean, there are schemes that one coaches are trying to respond to what the other guys are doing, and then they're trying to respond back. I mean, there's all this stuff happening. And when you get to the level like the Super Bowl, where you're playing in front of over 100 million people, and you have beaten all the other teams, there's a level of precision and ability between 11 guys functioning as a team in a unit that is unfathomable to most of us. 
They have spent hours and hours honing their skill and coming to this point and talking through and working through all these complex plays and offenses and defenses. But those two teams that played in the Super Bowl, if you were to talk to their coaches and say, what is the most important thing you do to get ready for this game? They would say blocking and tackling. They would say it's the basics because it doesn't matter how incredible your scheme is. If you can't complete a pass and he can't catch it with his two hands, and if you can't tackle on defense, it doesn't matter how good your scheme is, how great your strategy is, how complex it is, and how confusing it is to the other team. It's not going to work. And this is one of those passages that I think brings us back to the basics. And honestly, sometimes the Christian life can seem complex, and what we're doing in the church can seem complex. There's all these moving pieces, there's parts, we're trying to figure out how to live in community with one another and how to properly do ministry and how to reach out and how to know the Lord. It's all this is happening and going on. But this is the basics. These are the basics. The bottom line is that you and I are trying to build into one another faith, knowledge that accords with godliness, and hope. That's it. That's what we're trying to do. And all the budgets and the programs and the positions and all of that is for this goal. This is what we're, this is blocking and tackling. This is catching the ball. This is, these are the basics. And so let me encourage you this morning, no matter what your ministry is here, what you're doing, if it's music, if it's children's, if it's being an elder, if it's reaching out in a particular way, whatever it is, planning events, All of that, keep these goals in mind because this is what the foundation is for all of that. And understand exactly how he ends this greeting in verse 4. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Those two things will be with you as you function in ministry. God is gracious and we are at peace with him. So with that, let's help one another in these areas. Faith, knowledge, and hope. Let's pray. Father, we do want to remember these basic things this morning. Paul starts this letter in such a clear and a helpful and a simple way. And I just pray for our church body. I pray that we would not forget the basics. That we would go back to encouraging one another in the faith. Keep believing that we would go back to how important a right understanding of your word is, but a right understanding that changes the way we relate to one another and those outside the church as well. And I pray, Lord, that you would grow hope in us. Help us to long for eternal life, but help us to cling to it now. And I pray that it would change the way we live. Thank you for this church body. Thank you for a place that we can come and we can connect to. And that we can grow in these things. We can't do this on our own, Lord. I am unable to make progress in faith and knowledge and hope apart from this church body. This is the context in which all of this happens. And I pray that you would help us to see that as we study the book of Titus. And I pray that you would help us to grow in that. Help it not just to be something that we, another piece of information, a book study that we've done. But I pray that it would be life-altering in all the right ways. And we thank you for your grace and peace in the midst of this. We could not function in any of this without your undeserved kindness to us. 
So we thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.